Well, last week was our baptism service and was the first one that I have missed in 28 years. And were the situation not compelling to take us out of the country, um, I wouldn't have missed it. It's my favorite service of the year, probably for obvious reasons, followed by Christmas and Easter. And uh, I have not yet, but I will watch all the videoed testimonies. And uh, again, those are always just such a treat. So this morning's message is titled, What Now or Where Do We Go From Here? And I'm referring to last Sunday in baptism, where I want us to note this morning that baptism isn't a punch-your-card moment. It's a step on the pilgrimage of a life journey that presumes that presumes forward movement on the path of spiritual maturity, on the path of spiritual growth. And so I'm deviating from 1 Samuel this week to follow up with baptism, but my message this morning is perfectly fitting and actually in some ways a long time in coming for any Christ follower at any place on their life journey. I think of the writings of the Apostle Paul, who in various ways and with metaphors and at different times, and then the writer of Hebrews, all talk about running the race in such a way that you might finish. And we're seeing a a tragedy unfold out in the Midwest at Willow Creek. You're familiar with any and all of that. Where the founding pastor, Bill Hybels, uh, certainly began well and ran the race extraordinarily well and powerfully for many, many, many years. And now all of a sudden, there's just this complete cave-in that goes right through the leadership and elders resigning and walking away and associate pastors resigning and walking away and all kinds of question now and accusation about Pastor Hybels. And you just look at that and honestly, I cringe I don't stand there with my hands on my hips and go, oh, yeah, mm, sure, mm, see. Because I know, but for the grace of God, there go I. And I think of all the lives, the tens of thousands of people just associated there at Willow Creek and then the Willow Creek Association that is worldwide and all of that. Now it's all tainted, and I think about the young faiths and the young uh, believers that are, are so new in the faith and here this great man has the worst kinds of, of uh, shadow and clouds over his life and I think about his dear wife and all of that and I pray dear God in heaven would that you would strike me dead than to let my feet run in such a way as to discredit your name and to injure so many people. I tell you, and this may be unnecessary, but then again, not. Because everybody looks good on the outside. That Barbara and I, my wife, my high school sweetheart of 45 years, have a good marriage, a solid marriage, a great marriage. And we love each other deeply. And I am not, nor have I ever been into pornography, nor have I ever gone places like that or anything else. And I just want you to know that before God in heaven, I stand here before you this morning and say that thus far the race has been run well. And by God's grace, 
I will continue until the end. That is my pledge, my promise, and my vow. And I thank those of you, and you tell me just ever so sporadically over the years, that you actually pray for me and for our staff. Sometimes daily, which blows me away. And I was talking to somebody yesterday about a very unfortunate situation in their lives. And I was talking to him, and I mentioned about old King Abimelech when Abraham tried to pawn, not tried, he did pawn off his wife, Sarah, to Abimelech as his sister so that, you know, he wouldn't uh, suffer any severe repercussions from the king who admired Sarah. Nice guy, Abraham, the founder of the faith, if you will. God works with us all, right? Man, oh man. At any rate, so the Lord comes to Abimelech one night and basically paraphrase the story, just really blasts him for having taken Sarah, Abraham's wife, unto himself. And, and, and Abimelech, <laughs> bless his heart, he says, I, I, first of all, he said it was his, his sister, which he did. And second of all, I didn't do nothing. I didn't touch her. So come on, you know, implicit is so, hey, what's this all about? Get off my back. And I love what God says to him. He says, Abimelech, you didn't touch her because I didn't allow it. And I shared this in the context of the gentleman I was talking to. That I look back long before I even had any clue about pastoral ministry. How many times the the Lord protected me and in fact flat out put up barriers and roadblocks from my pursuing things that every normal red-blooded American would do. And I have never stood back and went, because I'm the man. And when I became a Christian, it's because I am so tight with Jesus and I am so sold out to him. That's why I have been so pristine and pure. No way. But I look back and I can see so profoundly how God said, Cripe, <laughs> you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't go there. You didn't go there. You didn't go here. You didn't think that you didn't go that because I didn't let you. And I go, Lord, you don't have to convince me of that because I know what a black, rotten heart and mind that I have. I'm just like everybody else. But for some reason, God had things planned, and may I run the race with endurance and finish it well. You hear me make passing reference to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, repeatedly uh, just over the seasons, and that's the one that says God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. But now I want to just talk about the rest of that snippet. The rest of that verse, just for a moment, because the whole verse says his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
And so we all come into this world, in a sense, on a level playing field. That is, we all come into the world already sin-stained and tainted into an absolutely ramshackle, spoiled world. And it's not just the world, it's spoiled individuals. And we have all faced that since the rebellion and because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against what? Against the true knowledge of God at Eden, which has polluted everything, included my own personality and yours. My own temperament and yours. It has polluted my own ability to reason and yours. And it's polluted my ability to function well. And by that meaning, as God intended before the fall of mankind. And so the key to living well in this world, even within our own tainted sensibilities, is to continue to pursue that true knowledge of God, which comes to us primarily how? Primarily, not only, but primarily by the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words of God. Let's begin this morning with a reading from the book of Proverbs, penned by the most famous wise guy in the world, Solomon. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'll be pausing as we go through this. My son appropriately read my children. I'm just saying. If you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. If you will receive my words. Now that doesn't just mean kind of like, you know, sometimes I'll have the the radio on in the background in the car when I'm driving someplace. And there may even be some preacher that I've put on or something to drop in on him or see what's going on or whatever. And you know, I'm doing other things. My head's elsewhere and I'll, I'm, I'm hearing stuff. I'm hearing words, but it's really not sticking. I'm not there. I'm not receiving it. I'm just hearing it and it's going literally in one ear and out the other because there's not much in between to stop it and it just passes right through but this says if you receive my words and for some strange reason I thought back to many many years ago again before pastoral ministry when I was doing hands-on patient care in a hospital working my way through college with family in tow no clue about ministry in the future but a very young, very new, very on fire follower of Christ. One of the things that you do when you give medications to a patient, okay, the nurses in here will know this. You don't just sit there and go, okay, here's your medication. You set it down on their table, whether it's a little cup or it's a pill or whatever, and then you walk out. Nope, at least you're not supposed to. Uh Uh-uh. Because you see, there are some people who, for whatever reason, they're not taking your stupid medicine. And so you hand them, and I remember handing a patient a pill or two pills, and I'll just stand there and go, okay, now let's take it. And then they put it in their mouth. You still don't turn around now and walk away. Some of them would like to put them under their tongue. And you find them later on somewhere on the floor, you know, and housekeeping's in there. You go, oh, that little stinker. No. You sit there and you watch them take it. You watch them take their fluid. And then afterward, it kind of would talk to them a little bit just to, See if they're fumbling a little bit to hide that little pill that's in there tucked away somewhere. I wanted to make sure that they receive that pill. Otherwise, there's no benefit to them, right? This is the level of receiving God's word that he's talking about here. We continue in the proverb. 
Make your ear attentive to wisdom. There's a, uh, when I read that, it, what jumped out at me was this, this idea of vigilant intention to being on the alert. Meaning it's an active process, not just ho hum, whatever. Incline your heart to understanding. Again, it, it implies intention and it takes effort. It takes design to do so. And why does the Lord implore us to receive his word like this? It is, follows, uh, it follows, for if you cry for discernment, now there's an intensity there. If you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her, her, who's her? Where'd that come from? Her is a personification. If you read the context, it's wisdom. Personification is giving human qualities or attributes to an inanimate object or an abstract idea. So when it says her, we're talking about wisdom. If you seek her wisdom, not her wisdom, her meaning wisdom, as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And then you will discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. God's purpose in doing what he says he will do. That's what he's referring to there. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. That's pretty comprehensive. And it's all about pursuing God's true knowledge of him and looking for it, being ready for it, being attentive to it when it comes and receiving it and taking it to heart. And Solomon continues in Proverbs to write about the profound value of wisdom, where in fact, every chapter of that book mentions the words wisdom or wise or being wise, which tells us wisdom is a highly desired attribute for living successfully. Okay, so what is wisdom? I remember going back many, many years, and I don't remember if it was before ministry or not, but for some reason, I was sitting there thinking about wisdom, trying to, to define it for myself. It's, what is wisdom? Because a lot of times it's interchange, used interchangeably with just knowledge or intellect or that sort of thing. And I thought, that just, no, that doesn't feel right. So what is wisdom? So here it is, authoritatively, not. This is my, goes way back, what I came up with. Wisdom, I was thinking about it, is actually knowledge applied. It's different than knowledge. It is knowledge that is applied properly. And included in this thing called wisdom in what I just said is the ability to know when and to know where and to know how to apply such knowledge. Wisdom requires knowledge. So without knowledge, wisdom is impossible. Meaning, Whatever your level of understanding of the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative words of God is, your wisdom and the depth and level of that is going to be dependent on your knowledge or lack of knowledge in this. Which is why we encourage everybody to work through the Bible in a systematic way on their own annually as a goal. I understand you won't make it. I don't make it every year. 
but I've made it most years out of 45. And so if you don't have the true knowledge of God, you can't have a whole lot of wisdom. What the world calls wisdom today is whatever you concoct in your own mind and heart and believe it with conviction. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom requires knowledge. So without knowledge, again, wisdom is impossible. And knowledge without wisdom can be hurtful. You can have the right knowledge, but use it at the wrong time or use it in the wrong way. Let me give you a, maybe a, 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 a little kind of silly illustration, but I've experienced it myself, and I know that many of you have too. So you're talking to a brother or sister or whatever, and in this case, guy's talking to a guy, which, you know, it's kind of mythical because we just don't do that, but let's pretend. And he's kind of bearing his soul to his brother in Christ, and he says, you know, my, my wife just lost her job. And, of course, with that means our health insurance. And I've got to have a knee replacement, you know, with, 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 that goes with that because, for, among other things, I need to get back to work and I need it in order to get back to work. And Brother Gumball now, filled in the spirit, says, well, you know, brother, all things work together for good to those that love God. That's true knowledge right out of Romans chapter 8. It's a great verse, and the whole context of that is is immense, and it's powerful. But that little snippet played at that time, at that moment, I would say, is insensitive, it's heartless, and more than likely, rather than encourage that brother, it's going to push them down even lower. That's what I mean by having knowledge that's true, but not the wisdom to know when, where, and how to apply it. The words of Hosea to God's people in the Old Testament, I believe, are prophetic words to the church today. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, the prophet writes, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness, there is no kindness, there is no knowledge of God in the land. Think about what I just said. Prophetic word to the church today. There is no faithfulness, kindness, or knowledge of God in the church. Oh, yes, there's the remnant, just as it was in the Old Testament. When God said that to Israel, there were faithful Israelites, but they were scant and few and far between. And in the church that wears Jesus' name today, a very fitting word, faithlessness, lack of kindness, lack of knowledge of God. Old Testament, New Testament application. So this is why within a five-mile radius of our location in here this morning, one can easily find churches that endorse, endorse abortion, that promote homosexuality and all the other letters of the LGBTQRLFBMSDGH just keeps growing. They shrug at fornication or, in fact, don't even know what fornication is because to them there basically is no fornication except being a Bible-believing Christian, ironically. 
Within five miles of our location, you can find churches that deny biological science. (laughs) And then tragically, even where we may find genuine converts to the faith of the Bible, we have a circus of inoculated churchgoers who embrace such leadership for fear of not wanting to lose their friends at their church. I can give you more than a couple of occasions of speaking to someone about whose parents go to a church that, yes, long ago, probably when they started going, was a pretty solid church. And now it's being pastored by an openly lesbian minister. And I'm like, okay. How, how do they even live with themselves in that con? Well, you know, they've, it's their church. They've gone there their whole lives and all their friends are there. That's it. So baptism, it's a wonderful experience, but baptism is not the pinnacle. It's not the zenith. It is not the apex of one's walk with Jesus. In other words, it's not, okay, baptism, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I don't know if we gave out t-shirts, got the t-shirt possibly. Okay. And then, you know what? Do you know that today I, I am fully confident that the combined attendance in both services at the church today, okay, this morning will be less than the cumulative number of people we have baptized over the years. By my tally, we've baptized over 450 people. Now I say, okay, I mean, obviously, you know, people come and go, people move out of the area. I understand all that. But I know a lot of those that we've baptized, I haven't seen in forever. And I know they're in the area. And yes, some are in other churches that are, and that's, that's fine. But the majority are not. What follows baptism is the rest of the life of faith, which is the process of growing in the love and knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord. Theologically, that process is called sanctification. The rest of this morning's message is going to highlight two Psalms. Maybe I'll probably only get to one which define by way of description, not by way of definition, but by way of description, elements of the process of sanctification or this road to spiritual maturity. And I'm talking about the very first psalm in what is the biggest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, which a bazillion years ago in my own, again, this was, I was not the minister and that's what ministers do. This was long before ever even thinking about ministry. And I was on a regular discipline with my children to memorize scripture with them. And this was long before Awana programs and everything else. This is just what we did in the home because I happened to be crazy enough to believe what the word says about the importance of the word and the knowledge of God. And so Psalm 1, we do it. And by the way, you know what? They, If you ask them today, I bet they would tell you they loved it because I didn't sit there and go, okay, line up, sit down, you know, Von, Mr. Von Trapp, you know, give them their own signals and they come by. It wasn't like that. I made a game out of it. And we had verse offs once they had kind of a, a handful of verses. And I'd sit there and I'd tell them, okay, I'd give them a, a reference. 
And this was now primarily Ginny and Billy because Katie was, you know, still not on the scene yet or was way too little. But we're not talking about old children here, sports fans. We're talking about what, maybe age four and five and then from there on up. Maybe even earlier than that, but I didn't start the games then. So Billy and Ginny are in this, this battle, right? And they're on the edge, really, they're, they're just excited. And I give the, you know, the, the old saying, anxiety blocks out recall. That's why, you know, when your house is on fire and you call the fire department and they go, what's your address? And you're like, ah, 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 and you can't come up with it. So, so here, the, the anxiety of competition. And they're both like, okay, give me Psalm 1. And and I'd only let them go so long, and then I'd do a buzzer. Okay? And they could tell, because I'd make it obvious, when I was getting to the end of the time that they had, and I'd start to like taking a breath. And they know it's coming. And I remember Ginny, who's like, because she knows it. They both know it, but they're now they're freaking themselves out. And Ginny comes kind of flying up off her knees and jumps on me to put her hand over my mouth so I can't make the buzzer. Anyway, scripture memorization, how important it is. And if you have children at this church, you have the ability to have some of the work done for you because Janet puts scripture memory verses throughout the whole year for them to memorize. But they need the parents to do it. And we actually have had, and I don't care if you're in here this morning, actually, I hope you are. He says in love. Yeah, we don't do that. I know. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. My kids there would go, because we had motions and everything that they would do throughout the psalm. And all the other verses we do, trying to help them, you know, with their memory things, mnemonic devices as they're called. And they had things for the tree and the fruit. It was always an apple somehow. It's great to hear little kids go and enjoying. Firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The leaves would come down and whatever he does, he prospers. By way of metaphor, this psalm begins with the don't do this, but do this kind of formula, which we see throughout the Old Testament, especially when God is making covenants or promises or contracts with his people. If you do this and you do this and you do this, here's what I will do in return. If you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this, here's what I will do in return. The don't do this part of this psalm begins with one's association with people in their daily routines, meaning basically who we hang with. I find that kind of interesting. This isn't some kind of detailed list of the big, you know, the top ten sins. And God says, stay away from them, don't do them. Need to avoid those, but rather it's a mandate right out of the gate of the whole book introducing Psalms about who we spend our time with. 
If you hang out with godless people, people whose entire view of life is contrary to the clearly revealed counsel of the Lord, God says, don't. And why does he say don't? Because, using my own allusion to Star Wars, the tendency of the nature of man in our sin-tainted fallenness is that we tend to be enticed over to the dark side. More common than not, rather than those residing on the dark side being enticed to the light of Christ's Spirit. So our bosom pals shouldn't be unbelievers. Now there's more to this. Don't start making all sorts of jumps. I'm not an advocate of isolationism. And don't soil your hands with they, them, and those out there. There's many of them out there, I would say. Yeah, don't soil yourselves with they, them, and those in there. Paul cautions to the church at Corinth. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. I love Paul. We have to keep in mind the context in which these kinds of warnings are being issued because they are in the context, again, of one's personal well-being, one's spiritual growth, one's iron sharpens iron moments where we are hanging around with people who will bring us closer to Christ and they and we them rather than pulling us away. These are not talking about being missions-minded. And what I mean by that is that Paul, in a missions context, also writes the church at Corinth saying, I have become all things to all men that I might win all the more. But you see, Paul had the spiritual maturity not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, even while being in the midst of it. His relationship to the wicked or the godless was for the express purpose of bringing them out of the dark and into the light of Christ. It wasn't to become their new best friend where you seek their help, their counsel, their accountability and godly perspective on all things pertaining to life and godliness. Back to Psalm 1. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Don't read that wrong because that can be taken two different ways, one positively, one negatively. It's not saying stand in the way of sinners as we sometimes use that phrase when opposing someone, like standing against them. It's saying, no, stand against, or it says don't stand for or support the way of sinners, meaning don't stand up. When somebody gives, you know, the, 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 they're advocating perversion or whatever it is, and you go, here, here, you know, that's what it means by don't do that. Don't stand that in the way of sinners. So don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't stand in the way of sinners and don't sit in the seat of scoffers. The third don't sit in the seat of scoffers is repetition of what he's already said now two times. It is called Hebrew parallelisms, which is a way of intensifying the warnings by stating the same idea in three different ways. The whole purpose of this, again, right out of the gate in Psalm 1, is the counsel of God warning godly people against the deadly trap of enculturation. 
Enculturation is adopting the cultural values, the views, the opinions, and the habits of the culture in which you live, presuming, of course, that it is a godless culture. The scenario of enculturation was and is so strong, it was the very reason why we read all those hard, uncomfortable passages in the Old Testament about what God said to do to those when he gave his people to the promised land and said, everybody that's there, either annihilate them completely, men, women, and children, or make sure they are completely, totally, and utterly evicted out of the land. Do not let anyone remain. And they violated that oftentimes. It wasn't because God was xenophobic. Starts with an X for you scrabble people or words with friends. Just as an example, in Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, God says, you shall make no covenant with them. He's talking about the current inhabitants of the promised land where God was taking them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes the same thing different way. A little yeast, tells us, greatly affects the whole lump of dough. And he writes that same thing to two different churches. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's the don't. But now the do. Verse 2, do make your delight the law of the Lord by meditating on it day and night. How does one make the law of the Lord one's delight? By listening to a sermon once a week? That's not going to do it. Or if we're to be more realistic, albeit cynical, albeit realistic, by listening to a sermon a couple of times, once a month, whatever. Such are the patterns of attendance in church today. Or are we going to learn to love the law of the Lord, meditate on it day and night by cracking the Bible open at home once in a blue moon or by grabbing the morning devotional, the streams in the desert, which I read for years. But that was my my bathroom reading because it was short and quick. Or our daily bread. No, I'm not stepping on toes here. Nothing wrong with devotionals. Unless that is the warp and the woof of your time in the word and your nourishment and nutrition. There's a gazillion devotionals available online or that yet email to you or notified that something's in your book, whatever. Out of curiosity, I clicked on one of those links called 10 Quick Christian Devotionals. I wanted to say, oh, okay, they're telling you right up front they're quick. I want to see how awesome and amazing this is. The first one, and I just read number one, the first one took me 28 seconds to read. And that was including the commentary part of the the verse included. Number two, I went to that one. That one was much more in depth. That one took me 58 seconds to read. I couldn't handle the depth of it all. The Lord issues an imperative. That means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Saying delight in the law of the Lord, which you do, you come to do, you come to appreciate by meditating on it day and night. You mean literally? 
Of course not literally. But metaphorically and meaningfully. And what does that mean to meditate on the law, law of the Lord? It means thinking about it. It means asking questions of it. I mean, to yourself even. And then thinking about the questions you ask of it to yourself. It means praying about it, asking for God's help and thinking about it and seeking the Spirit's help in mulling it over and maybe even talking to somebody else about it. And then coming back to it during the day or through the week. And no, I can't quantify what it takes to, to qualify for meditating on it day and night. But the point is clear as to what it doesn't mean, which I've already mentioned, albeit with a touch of sarcasm. 28 seconds in the morning. Not what's in mind here. And to be candid, I could only wish that God's people would have the same fervor towards his law as so many do towards memorizing the stats of their fantasy sports picks or the works of fiction like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. No harm. I'm not a killjoy. No harm in having hobbies and fun. But I'm just saying when somebody can rattle off 32,000 facts about a work of fiction and are totally illiterate of the word of God, there's a problem of priority. The third verse of the psalm then describes the results, again metaphorically, of delighting one's self in the law of God. Verse 3, He will be like a firmly planted tree by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Again, I can't go through this psalm without picturing my little kids and doing the motions and stuff that we uh, would rehearse every time we'd say it. But their favorite part is coming up. So we have now the picture of a tree that's secure. It's being constantly watered. It's productive with a bounty of fruit. And it wraps together metaphorically this picture of well-being, prosperity, and security. But then the hammer falls on the following verses, revealing again metaphorically the fate of those who have no regard for the law of the Lord and the Lord of heaven. This is the part the kids loved. I don't know what this says about them. Or about their father who was teaching them. Verses 4 through 6. The wicked are not so. Oh, I can picture they'd fold their arms like this. And they'd get this look of arrogant disgust on their look. And they'd go. And they had a little different nuance for each section of the verse. You know, and it got a little more intense. The wicked are not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. They'd go. And I bet they still know the motions. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Here we go again. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Gets more vigorous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. They'd get a big grin going. And this was their favorite part now. But the way of the wicked will perish. And at that moment, and they, I'm not kidding you. You can just see them going, because they're ready, because they know it's coming, and this is their favorite, man, and they got to take some energy. But the way of the wicked will perish. Go! And they'd scream and point. It's like, okay, I guess. 
six verses that say so much, not just about the ongoing travels down that road of spiritual maturity, but about the essential roadmap to success in life. Or in the language that the Old Testament uses, the, what is the key to shalom? The Hebrew word for peace, and it's far more comprehensive than what we Gentiles understand it as, is just wishing somebody peace, oh, shalom, you know. The broad meaning of shalom, quoting an author that I love dearly, the, <laughs> the broad meaning of shalom connotes the oversight, guidance, and generous blessing of God on every part of a person's existence. <gasps> Whew, man, that is heavy. <laughs> Moving to Psalm 119, ever so quickly. It extols the glories and the virtues of God's law like no other book in the Bible. There is another verse group that I memorized with the kids from Psalm 119. And this one I actually remember learning for myself when I was a brand new baby Christian in the army because I needed it. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What's the key to not sinning against the Lord? Well, at least a, 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 a basic foundational part of it. The beginning point and the end point is to know the word so that it's on your heart and mind. Pretty straightforward. So what's the key to staying away from minefields in the first place? If there is any single idea that marks the foundation of Psalm 119, it is the word law. And by law there, because it's, it's translated variously and appropriately so throughout the scriptures. It's often referred to, we talk about the law, people think about the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Laws or Rules, if you will. But in the context, the whole Bible, everything that is issued forth from God's revelation to mankind in it, that is the law of God. I want to make that clear. And what does Psalm 119 say? I can go through this very quickly, all from one, Psalm 119, and this is only just little snippets. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. And again, this is nowhere near comprehensive from just that one psalm. Last week in Anaheim, California, just last weekend, there was a, a big event put on by Pastor Greg Laurie, who I've known of since I was a brand new baby Christian. And it was called SoCal Harvest. 
Greg Laurie's a very well-known megachurch kind of pastor, speaker, all of that, author, and everything else. Before the event around Los Angeles, there were billboards of Pastor Greg with that hideous, offensive, dangerous book in his hand called the Bible. And he was made to remove all the billboards because of the danger of that book and the offense of that book last week. And so when they got together at SoCal Anaheim Stadium, they had over 100,000 people. Another 325,000 people were streaming live around the country and everything else with it. 10,000 plus decisions for Christ. I don't know if this is true or not. I've read uh, different things about it. Some that it's more apocryphal than actual. But from what I could tell, I think it's probably real. You know, you might know the name Voltaire. He was a late, dead, you know, uh, atheist kind of uh, philosopher, philosopher, wise guy, big mouth, whatever you want to call him. Voltaire stated that within 50 years, I think it was, within 50 years, the church of Jesus Christ would be out of existence. 50 years from his life, okay, and he lived... I can't remember, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Within 50 years, the church of Jesus Christ will be gone. In God's sense of humor and irony, Voltaire's house, somewhere along the line, was purchased by a Bible society, and it was used for the printing of Bibles for many generations, long after the 50 years that Voltaire predicted. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I have my doubts in the flesh today, but I know absolutely better. And I know that that is what I am staking my eternity on. God knows what he's about. I don't like it, but he doesn't ask me for my approval. Wherever you are on that road, you've got to step up the game for your sake. For your sake. And if you have children, I adjure you by the wisdom and counsel of God that you heard this morning that you need to step up your leadership in your home. And that means the men. Unfortunately, tons of them aren't here today. And that means the leadership, it's not the woman's. Yeah, the women, they go, they go pray with the kids. They put them in and they do the obligatory perfunctory prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. That's not real prayer. Scripture memorization, reading their Bibles to them, doing the games, praying with them at night. And this wasn't when I was a pastor. I did it. Because in my naivete, and I'm reading this book from the day I was an early, early Christian, it was obvious that's what I'm obligated to do. And so are you and us all. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, I so pray 
that there is conviction in here this morning. Not conviction unto annoyance and fleshly anger, but conviction unto repentance. To step up the game, Lord, in their personal lives and in the lives of their children and their families. To seek to delight in your law and to meditate on it day and night and to, with godly wisdom, apply their knowledge to the warp and woof of life, to your glory and praise. Amen.